Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to NJSBA's Blog Talk Radio show, Conversations on New Jersey Education. This is a special show. It's a program. It's dedicated to creating uh, for school board candidates. This program is dedicated to having a conversation on the important education issues of today. But this program is dedicated to people who are thinking and running for the school board. My name is Ray Penny. I'll be your host uh, for this evening. Uh, Before I get started, however, I'd like to tell you how to participate. If you want to ask a question live, just call in and dial 1-347-989-8904. And when you're ready to make a comment or ask a question, press the number 1, and that will indicate on our switchboard that you are ready to ask a question. Uh, Jennifer, who is monitoring our switchboard, will get your name and your question or topic and send it on to me. Also, if you're on the phone line, I will ask you to turn down the volume on your computer and only listen on the phone since there will be a delay and it is a bit confusing. If you are listening on your computer, we do have a chat room feature that you can log on to. We will we'll be monitoring the chat room and we'll pass on the questions uh, or comments or questions to our speakers. To log on the chat room, you will need to register with Blog Talk Radio. As I said, this is a special program, and this is for our school board candidates, uh, and I know there are many of you. Uh, first of all, let me introduce myself. My name is Ray Pinney. I'm the Director of Member uh, Engagement and the County Activities for New Jersey School Board Association. I'll explain who New Jersey School Board Association is with me. But we have a couple of people here who will help you through your, let's think positive. You're going to get elected. Um, and if you get elected, you're going to have a lot of questions. I have with me Mike Calber, who is a director of our legal department, legal policy and um, labor relations. Mike, welcome. Thank you, Ray. Thanks for having me tonight. Uh, always a pleasure. Mike, just tell us a, very briefly what your department does. Sure. We're uh, three sections within one department. Our legal department, uh, we have attorneys on staff who can provide districts with legal information, answer legal questions. Uh, One of the good things that we do is an attorney of the day program where any day a board member, administrator, board attorney can call us, talk to us about legal issues. What we can't do is provide legal advice because that's your local attorney and the attorney-client relationship that that person has. But we can give you information that will help you to better make decisions uh, based on a full plate of information. Our policy department Boards are policy-driven organizations. Um, We can work with the district and with individuals in terms of developing policy, advising what good policy should look like. We can assist you with your policy manuals and, you know, get you up to date as the legislature or the state board or other or the commissioner makes changes that require you to make changes to your policy. Last but not least, because it is 80% of your budget, um, our Labor Relations Department will work with you and help you review your collective bargaining agreement, assist you with going into negotiations. Uh, we'll review salary guides and work with you on that, and we'll provide information and assistance throughout that process. So uh, we are very user-oriented. Um, I like to say we're part of the, the second floor worker bees here at the association because we are really the ones that provide direct dues-based services to the members. Uh, so, Ray, I think that sums it up. Okay. Uh, also with us is Terry Lewis. Terry's one of our field service representatives. Um, and my advice to you uh, school board candidates after you get elected, uh, your first phone call if you have a question is almost always to your field service representative. So, Terry, just tell us briefly what your uh, a field service representative does. Sure, Ray. That would be great. Um, you know, we consider ourselves probably the, the uh, traffic controllers for the association. Um, and like you said, you know, your first call is probably to your field service rep. That's probably going to be every call. What we can't answer, we then refer you to the um, additional services that we have, whether it's legal and policy, our educator in residence. In addition to that, we provide direct services to boards by visiting them at their locations, providing training, um, group activities, teamwork, um, but on the board's turf, not in the not in the office. 
uh, Terry, just to uh, clarify, if board members can talk to you individually to just ask for advice, as you know, about situations and everything is confidential. Absolutely, there are um, eight of us that cover the over 560 districts in the state of New Jersey. So when you call the one that's assigned to your area, every conversation is considered confidential. We don't pass that along, and we don't share it with anybody else on your board. Okay. Uh, thank you, Terry. Mike, these people, uh, you're just elected to the school board. There are several legal things you need to do that a board member needs to do shortly after being sworn in or maybe even before they're sworn in. First of all, they will have to have a criminal background check. Please explain that. Sure. Uh, before I do that, I just want to say, Terry and your fellow field service representatives are the hardest working people I know. And for most board members, as they'll find out, they are the New Jersey School Boards Association. Criminal background checks. Only since 2011 has the legislature required that newly elected board members undergo a criminal background check. Now, what will happen is you need to do that within 30 days of being elected or appointed to your board. The Department of Ed has interpreted that 30-day period to begin when the election results are certified. Now, those results will be certified the Monday after the election, November 10th. So 30 days after that would be December 10th. So they will have that 30-day period to get your background check done. Work with your business administrator. They will help to provide you with access to the resources necessary to do that. It's an online registration process. You get fingerprinted. There's a state and federal background check that gets done. And basically they look at the same disqualifying offenses that would apply to an employee in your school district. That can be found in 18A12-1, the whole list. Um, so you need to have that done within your 30-day period. Now what has happened typically is that because it's November and it's December, and because of the number of new board members that get elected, it is sometimes difficult for all of those uh, background checks to be fully processed with information back to the district and back to the new board member within that 30-day period. So what the Department of Ed indicated last January that it is permissible to swear in a board member whose background check has not been completed because one of the other things you do is you um, declare an oath when you're sworn in on the board that you basically you uh, swear or affirm that you have not been disqualified by a voter and you have not been disqualified due to conviction of any of the crimes or offenses under 18A12-1. So you can take that oath of office, you can be sworn in, and you can move on as a board member. Thank you, Mike. Um, uh, one more thing that they're going to probably have to do is uh, fill out a financial disclosure form, and could you explain what that is? Sure. Under the School Ethics Act, any new board member and employee, and actually, quite frankly, we at New Jersey School Boards Association, we as employees are covered by that. You need to fill out a financial disclosure form within 30 days of assuming the office of position. You'll be assuming the office at the organization meeting in a January date. So within 30 days, you'll fill out a personal, financial, and relative disclosure form. Last year, for the first time, the Department of Ed put those online. Uh, so you will work through your business administrator, board secretary, to get the appropriate passwords to access this online after you're elected. Now, the question is, what do they ask? In the relative disclosure form, they ask if any person related to you or related by marriage is employed by the school district or charter school in which you hold office or are employed. So if you have a relative who works in the district, and the School Ethics Commission defines relative as spouse, child, parent, sibling, if you have one of those individuals working in the district, you need to list them and their position on your financial disclosure form. If you or a person related to you are party to a contract with the school district, you need to list that. And if you or any relative receives compensation or has an interest in a business, which is a party of contract with the school district, that has to be listed as well. On the financial disclosure statement, you need to report certain sources of income, not the amounts, but the sources that you see you are an immediate family member, which is your spouse or dependent child living with you, 
has an excess of $2,000. So you need to indicate the source of the income. You also need to indicate sources of fees or honorariums or reimbursed expenses exceeding $250 from a single source and any business organizations in which you were a member of your immediate family had held an interest in the preceding calendar year. I will tell you that as far as filing financial disclosure forms, because local government people have to do that as well, we get roughly, roughly 15,000 school officials in the state of New Jersey, a little under 5,000 board members, and school officials also include many of your school administrators. We are better than 99.9% than compliant. We'll get 5, 6, 7, 10 people per year who don't file their financial disclosure forms. So folks do a really good job with that. Uh, before I go to Terry, um, there is a question from the chat room, and it's a good question. If you're a teacher or any other public official who's had a background check before, do they need to do another? You still need to do another background check, but you can do a shortened version that that's, that's available for you to do. And it actually, I should mention, the background check also, there's a, involved with that that you need to front. It's right now at $67.20 plus a $10 administration fee. And then the board can reimburse the, the board member for that background check. All right. So uh, um, it's, it's okay for after you're elected and certified that you reach out to the business administrator or anyone, I guess, but mostly the business administrator get to ask about these uh, forms. I think that's the best way to go because they'll be processing that. It used to be they were paper forms and you have to file one with the business administrator and they would send one to the county and they would send one to Trenton, but now it's all online. Okay. Terry, uh, a board member is elected. Uh, any, when you're elected to any position, there's always su surprises or a surprise to any job. What are usually, what's one of the biggest surprises you see from your experience, and you've been with us for a while, uh, that new members uh, have? I think the largest surprise that everybody has is that what they thought the Board of Education did is not necessarily the case when they actually assume the position. Uh, for example, one of the biggest questions that we get is, I thought the Board had the ability to um, hire and fire staff. And you find out very shortly thereafter that um, any hiring comes with the recommendation of the superintendent um, along with any dismissals. So that's probably one of the largest. I think, um, and, and I'll speak from a personal example too. You know, when I ran for the board, I ran based on I wanted to affect taxes. Um, I wanted to make sure that we were hiring. Actually, I wanted to hire staff. I thought I could do a better job. And there were some other issues. And then when I got on the board, I found that, you know, I can't do that. It's not my job to go in and meddle in the finances. They employ a business administrator for that. It's not my job to hire. It's not my job to, um, to take care of employees other than through the collective bargaining agreement. Um, so I think from a board member standpoint, what you think a board actually does and what they really do are two different things. The board is in place to provide oversight, not to run the schools. Okay. Um, just I'll do a quick follow-up on that. Um, so are you telling me that a board member is – if I can't hire and fire, but – do I get to have input on the, uh, those personnel decisions? You know, oh, absolutely. And that's where the fun starts. Anytime you want to affect what happens in the school, you affect it through policy. Because the board is actually, first and foremost, a policy-making body. So if you want to affect hiring decisions, if you want to raise the bar for who's being hired, um, you do that through affecting good policy. Um, and again, you know, that's something that we can assist with. Number one, boards have policies, but if you want to tighten it up, you want samples, we obviously have a, de a policy department that Mike had already pointed out that can assist you with that. So anytime you want to affect change, you want to look at policy first. 
Okay. I think the other thing. Oh, I'm sorry, Ray, but I just no, think you I need to get this in. I think the other thing that's important is most board members really want to run because they're concerned about student achievement. They want to make sure that the students are getting the best that they can. Um, it's not our job to say how that is going to happen. A board member doesn't doesn't get involved in the how, but they certainly get involved in the what. Um, they certainly can say, look, you know, we want all students reading at grade level. Um, we want uh, more AP courses. Uh, we want more kids taking AP courses. And as to the how that that happens, that is up to the administration. Okay, Mike, uh, I'll ask you a question. Um, most people who run for the board or uh, are very active in their community. Their, their family may be active. Uh, but that closeness also can uh, has some conflicts of interest. Can you just talk a little bit about uh, common conflicts of interest? Sure. Uh, before I do that, I just want to do uh, a little clarification on the criminal background check need for teachers who already went through one. That sure. shortened form is for checks that occurred, teachers who went through background checks after February 21, 2003. So if you are a fairly recent uh, enrollee, if you will, in the teacher corps or employee corps, and it's been within the last well, 11 years, the, the crimes that are looked at are covered still, still, so that's when you can do the shortened form. If you got a background check before February 21, 2003, you could not use the abbreviated system. You'd have to go through the full check. Okay. Let's talk about common conflicts of interest. Probably the biggest, and that gets the most discussion, is when you have a relative who works in the district. Now, there are three laws, 18A.12.2, the granddaddy of conflict of interest laws, goes back to 1903, says a board member can't be directly or indirectly uh, financially involved in a claim or contract with the board. Uh, the School Ethics Act, enacted in 1992, which covers conflict of interest and code of ethics, and also the nepotism regulations from uh, 2008 from the accountability regs, all play into relatives in the district conflicts. And there's two areas where it occurs primarily. One is the collective negotiations. If you have a relative who works in the district who is covered by the collective bargaining agreement in place, generally speaking, you can't participate in that process. You can't set parameters. You can't be on the negotiating team. You can't vote on the contract. That's the general rule. Uh, if you have a situation where a majority of your board is in conflict, there's something called the doctrine of necessity that will allow everybody to participate to vote. But we can get into more of those details later, perhaps. The other area is personnel issues. If your relative works in the district, you're going to be limited in things you can do, for instance, with the superintendent because the superintendent has supervisory authority over the entire district. And since your relative works in the district, the superintendent supervises your relative, you will not be able to participate in a search, in a hiring, in a promotion, in an evaluation for the superintendent. And similarly, for administrative personnel, for principals, supervisors, and such, who supervise your relative, that's going to be a, con a conflicted area for you as well. Outside of those couple of things that come up, um, sometimes former board member, current board members, or former educators in the district, mm -hmm. depending on when you left the district and retired, one of the issues that's come up in the last couple of years are retired teachers from the district that are currently receiving reimbursement for unused sick time. If that payment is spread out over multiple years and goes into the board member's term, the board member will not be able to participate because of that claim against the board. So those are some of the more um, common ones that we get questions about day to day. Just I'm going to follow up on that. What happens if I'm a teacher or an educator uh, but not in the district, or, or I have a relative who's a teacher but not in the district? Well, if it's if you're talk are you talking about collective negotiations issues? Yes. Or just or generally. Anything, in general. 
Uh, well, generally, you know. okay, generally, um, if you have a relative or an immediate family member, as it's defined, that works outside, is, is in another district, or you work in another district, you're going to have some limitations on negotiations participation. Basically, once the tentative, you're out until the tentative agreement is established with all salary guide and compensation issues, and then you can fully participate and vote. That's based on a decision from 2000 involving Frank Panucci Sr. from the Brick Township Board of Ed. Uh, Frank worked in Brick, in East Orange rather, was a board member in Brick, voted on the agreement. The commission initially found a violation, and then the state board overturned that, saying that distance was just too far. So that's where the, the adjustment there occurred. Um, so with that out-of-district conflict, it affects negotiations. If it's just an out-of-district, same statewide union affiliation conflict, it doesn't affect the ability to do things on a personnel side. Um, unlike in-district conflicts where you can be precluded from participating in personnel issues with supervisors, directors, and the superintendent, that out-of-district employment doesn't affect personnel decisions. Okay, I'm going to switch gears a little bit, uh, but just for our listeners, uh, if you have a question, please dial 1-347-989-8904 and press 1. 1-347-989-8904. Uh, Mike, I'm going to follow up, because we, we, this will tie in a little bit, because um, you, you talked about some of the legal responsibilities they have before, and you talked about some of the conflicts of interest if I get elected, can board members board members elect attend board meetings before they are sworn in? Uh, and if they do, uh, do they get additional information, or are they just members of the public at that point? Well, the the answer to that question is one of my favorite legal answers, which is it depends. <laughs> um, board, I mean, public meetings. Any board member, newly elected, not sworn in, public meetings. As a member of the public, you can participate. You can seek information as a member of the public. That hasn't changed. The question that we really get is, can a board member-elect sit in on a closed session discussion? Or can they get information that's going to be leading to um, some decision that's going to be made down the road? I just had a question the other day uh, from a board member wanting to know if, if board members who got elected could sit in on closed session when the board discusses negotiation strategy coming forward. Boards have people other than board members in closed session all the time. The, the business administrator is often there to take minutes. Sometimes they'll have parents come in that will want to talk to the board about an issue of their, their own student, student privacy. Sometimes there might be a student disciplinary issue. Sometimes it's an employment issue where people are invited into closed session. The issue for board members-elect is confidentiality and privy to information that they would not otherwise be privy to. If it's simply something like discussing negotiations parameters, the board has some control, and in some instances, boards have decided they want their um, newly elected people to at least hear what the board is thinking about, and they will invite them in. The challenge to that is that unlike the school, unlike board members who have been sworn in, the board members-elect are not subject to the School Ethics Act, the Code of Ethics for School Board Members, or any other um, oversight should they breach confidentiality, should they do something they shouldn't have done out of that closed session. The personnel issues get a little more dicey because mm -hmm. you, really need, you really need to get the uh, consent from the individual whose privacy interest is affected before you have someone other than the board members privy to that information. All right, I'm going to do a follow-up to that, Terry, because, uh, Terry, I want to ask you about some of your feelings about transitioning a new board member during that lame duck session, uh, which we've never had before. But uh, there is a question um, from our chat room uh, about something that you had alluded to before, the, the distinction between what and how. Could you ah, okay. Could you make that distinction a little clearer? Absolutely. Um, the what always belongs to the board. And the what, let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, the what is um, one that I had mentioned before. We want all students reading at grade level. 
we want all students proficient um, in the use of technology by X grade. We want um, all students to have um, access to uh, higher level math. Um, those are what questions, and that's something that a board can decide. As to how that gets done, that is up to the administration. It's up the, to them to put together the plans um, to carry out the board's desires. So if the, if the what was, we want all students reading at grade level, it's up to the administration to put together action plans to decide how they're going to make that happen. Does the board review those plans? Absolutely. But the board doesn't get the opportunity to say, well, I think you should do it this way. <laughs> you have to rely on the educational professionals that you have employed. Um, mm -hmm. And that is their job. Our job is to provide oversight and then evaluate the progress. So uh, just to clarify that, the board's basically setting the goals, the direction, and the administration is setting how they're going to get there, and the, then the board has to hold them accountable for yeah, their absolutely. Uh, okay. And I'm glad uh, that you brought up goal setting. Yes. Because goal setting. Can I? I'm sorry. I feel like I'm interrupting you, Ray. <laughs> no, hey, go ahead. Goal you know, we, yeah, because the questions kind of sent us in that direction a little bit. Okay. The goal setting process for a board is an absolute must. If you do not set goals, you have no direction, therefore what can you evaluate? So it is extremely important that boards sit down every year um, you know, and, and pick the month that you want, May, June, July, August. Sit down and decide what goals you want to accomplish in the upcoming year. Mm -hmm. Goals don't necessarily have to be one year long. I mean, they can be a really a good goal that may take two or three years to accomplish, but it's important that they sit down annually and decide what it is they're going to work on for that upcoming year. When they set the you goal, know, that that's also in conjunction with the administration too, right? Absolutely. You know, a lot of people don't realize that the superintendent is actually a member of the board. They're just a non-voting member. Okay. Um, uh, now I'm going to go back to what Mike was talking about because that, that that was a great question actually by the person making that uh, distinction. Would, um, would you have any recommendations? Because I'm going to my next question was on building a, a team because board members to be effective. One of the things that I also think they don't understand is it's not a solo act. You have five, seven, nine, ten, depending on how many. Uh, if you're in ascending receiving, you, there's, it's a group, so you have to build relationships. Can you start to build that relationship? Do you have any recommendations in that lame duck session, say in mid-November to December, that maybe the board president or they should reach out to some of the veteran board members? I think it's really important that um, during that lame duck session, you do what you can to get up to speed on where the board is currently. Um, and, you know, like I, I said before, goal setting generally takes place at the end of a school year prior to the beginning of a new one. So the new goals are already in place. Make sure you know what those goals are. Um, ask for a copy of the board bylaws. Make sure you read through those so that you know how the board operates, you know, what guides its function. The bylaws are part of the policy manual. Um, and that's where they can be found. But it lets you know who's the spokesperson for the board. How do things get on the agenda? Um, it, it, it provides you with a framework with how the board operates. Um, next, you probably will want to meet also with the superintendent, uh, the BA, and the board president, maybe the vice president. They can bring you up to speed on different uh, initiatives that they have going on, different issues that they're facing just so that when you walk into your first meeting, which is a reorg meeting, um, reorganization meeting, 
you're not sitting there going, oh, my gosh, what is this? What are they talking about? Uh, the reorganization meeting, I think, can be a little daunting. And I think most boards um, do take the time, board presidents, superintendents, to meet with new board members to say, look, this is the stuff on the agenda that you're going to see, and that's what this means. In terms of teamwork, Ray, I mm. think it is really important that new board members, number one, first listen. And I know that's really hard because if you were anything like me, when I got elected, I just wanted to get in there and make things happen. And the, the truth of the matter is, if you stop, take a deep breath, find out what's already being worked on, what's already in place, you may find that some of that coincides with some of the things that you wanted to do. Remember, there are, at, you know, nine people, we always say nine people on a board, sometimes there's seven, sometimes there's 11. And in order for anything to get done, it's by majority vote. So you may have the greatest idea out there, but if no one else supports it, it's not going to get done. So first and foremost, listen. Find out where your fellow board members are. Find out what's already being worked on. And then slowly you can bring your ideas to the table. Everybody has an agenda when they're elected. And, and I say agenda, everybody goes, oh, my gosh. An agenda is not a bad thing. An agenda just means these are things that are important to me. This is what I would like to accomplish. Well, it's important to find out what all nine people's agendas are, what they think is important. You know, take the consensus and then work on those. Well, so uh, your general advice is not to be like you when you were a board member when you first got elected, which, uh, and but basically to listen and to to your to your new colleagues, and that you're you're one of seven, nine, ten, eleven. We all know how many. And uh, is that generally what it is? Absolutely. You know, I'm one of those people that you know. I, I think sometimes I learn through the school of hard knocks. Um. So you're right. Don't be like me. <laughs> um, and if you need any guidance by any means, feel free to contact your field service rep and say, you know, what do you recommend? Where do you think I should look? How should I handle this? Uh, because, you know, there are particular situations within boards where, you, you know, something may have happened. You're like, I don't understand it. I felt like I was alone. You know, give your rep a call, and we can help sometimes work you um, through that situation. Yeah, I'm going to just reiterate what you said because I was a field service rep at one time, and sometimes it's just nice to have someone that you can think out loud with uh, about what's going on. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and that's your job is to do that. with. Uh, and you work, and I, I want to clarify this, you work with boards as an entity, but you also work for the individual. Yes, that is true. We work for the individuals, and we work for the board as an entity, as a whole. Which Mike does, too. Uh, right, Mike? That is true. Yeah, you, you work. Uh, but, you know, you mentioned something before in, in, in the conflicts of interest, and you kind of just said, you know, there's a code of ethics. Well, you know, we all like to think we're ethical people, and we have a code, but... This is a formal legal document. Can you explain that? Sure. The Code of Ethics for School Board Members um, is a fairly recent addition to statute, at least recent to me, because it, it became part of the School Ethics Act in 2001. Uh, what was happening at that time was uh, Jersey City, which was a state takeover district, was about to get local governance restored to them. There was concern in the legislature, at, you know, how we hold people accountable at the board level who, when they got control back. And Dave Hespy, who was commissioner at the time and is now commissioner again, said, well, school boards has this code of ethics. Our code of ethics was adopted by our delegate assembly in 1975. It was a Mike, I'm going to interrupt you with the delegate assembly because you okay. just said well, that. Okay, well, I'll get to that. Okay. In 19, it was adopted in 1975. It was a post-Watergate phenomenon, and it deals with behaviors, how board members should act. Our delegate assembly, New Jersey School Boards Association, is a policy-based organization, which means that you, Terry, I, we really get to have no mind of our own when it comes to positions and policies 
on education because we only believe what our organization tells us we believe. And what that means is what our members tell us we believe. Because the de Delegate Assembly, or DA as it sometimes is called, is a meeting twice a year of one representative from every board of education in the state. They meet, they discuss, they vote on policies, they vote on resolutions from different boards, and they establish our marching orders, if you will, with respect to our positions on public education issues. So it really is a grassroots developed system that we have here at NJSBA. Now, the Code of Ethics of School Board Members deals, my favorite one is, and Terry alluded to this earlier, my favorite one is, is the fact that um, the responsibility of the board member is not to administer the schools, but together with fellow board members to see that they are well run. You can look at that at 18A 1224.1. There's, there's like 10 different items on there. But that's really the core. It's not to run the schools, but make sure that it's well run. Um, one of the things that's required in administrative code, and it was just recently amended, is that annually the board is supposed to discuss now, since September 1st of this year, not only the Code of Ethics, but also the School Ethics Act at an annually at least once a year at a meeting of the Board of Education. Now, our field service reps, like Terry, will work with the local board to go through their ethics training to make sure that they're fully aware of their responsibilities. And board members have to then, by code, sign off that they have received the Code of Ethics and that they understand it. All right. Um, Terry, do you want to... Just chime in on the Code of Ethics a little bit, too. Any follow-ups from your perspective? Absolutely. You know, that is, you know, as Mike alluded to, it is it is a great document, those, those tenants, to tell you these are the lines that I need to stay in between as a board member. Um, and we go out, we will go out to boards, we will actually start in January and do ethics presentations so that everyone is aware of what those tenants are, what those tenants mean, provide some, um, some uh, examples so that you know how to apply them and make sure that everybody is up to speed moving forward on what their obligations are. But it is a good way for you to sit down and say, okay, this is how I need to operate as a board member. Much the same as the, you know, the policy manual when you pull out the bylaws. Uh, it's another way for saying these are the lines that I have to stay in. And, and if I can uh, hit a point too, that I'm sorry, go ahead. So, uh, no, you go because I'm just going to give a piece of advice for board members. If I can too. add to that, one of the aspects of the training is that it has to be done at a regularly scheduled public meeting of the board. So, from a transparency perspective, members of the public in your community get an opportunity to see that, in fact. You have been trained in these in these areas and get to hear the discussion that goes on with, when Terry or anybody else from her department is involved in in working and training the board. Uh, I'm going to give my no. own. Uh, no, I'm no, sorry, Terry, I'm going to have a full rank here, Terry. I'm going to say well, oh. one of my pieces of advice because Mike uh, event, and I'll get to you, Terry. Don't worry. Uh, is that uh, we mentioned terms like code of ethics, the DA. You're going to find, uh, once you get elected, acronyms are all, all over the place. And don't be embarrassed to ask what an acronym stands for because uh, it's almost a new language and we invent a new acronym in education, public education, every uh, every month at least. Uh, Terry, you had a comment? Uh, you know, I was going to say when, when uh, Mike brought up about you know the public uh, seeing that you do your due diligence, I think it's really important also for the public understand you know what your roles are and the guidelines that you have to operate in as a board member because just as you weren't um, as a new newly elected board member you weren't aware of uh, things that you can and cannot do uh, they are in the same boat so when they hear the presentation and they hear the discussion about the code of ethics a lot of times they're like you know what I never knew that so mm -hmm. it's really good Good presentation, uh, Terry. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit, uh, a little while ago, about the importance of building a relationship with your colleagues on the board, your fellow board members. But probably a, a relationship that's really important, and um, 
is the relationship with the superintendent and the board and the individual board member. Could you and it's a kind of a unique uh relationship. Could you uh, just elaborate briefly on that? You know, it's um it is a very unique relationship because I said that the um the superintendent is actually a member of the board and they are, but they're also an employee of the board. So they serve kind of a dual role in there. What we always say is this. It's it's your job as a board member to provide oversight, appraise what's being done, and evaluate the progress in the end. And this is not any sort of a gotcha by any means. Because if you try to treat that role as a gotcha, you're going to find out that nothing is going to get done. People mm-hmm. are going to kind of hold back from you and, and not share. But if you treat it as we're all in this together, you have common goals, hence let's go back to the goal setting. You have common goals. We all know what's being worked on. Um, the superintendent can keep you updated as to where you are. You will find out that much more gets done in your district than if you try to uh, circumvent the system or if you try to go around and, and be the lone board member, like the lone ranger. Um, you'll find it's a whole lot easier when there's nine people focused on one or actually ten people focused on one thing, two things, three things, than um, if we're not. All right, and uh, Terry, just a quick follow-up. Um, if, you know, even if I'm um, inclined when I'm running that, you know what, I don't think the superintendent's the leader for our district, I still, if they have a contract, I still have to work through them for the remainder of a professional relationship uh, to get things done. Absolutely. You know, okay. I said earlier that, you know, a board member can't – their responsibility is not how. Their responsibility is not to direct staff. Um, their responsibility is not to go in and tell people what to do, but to make sure that the things that you have identified as important to the board are getting completed. Um, and in order to do that, you've got to be able to have the information coming from the administration to say, here's where we are, here's what we've done. Um, it's a back-and-forth dialogue. It's good communication because if you don't have that, you're not going to go anywhere. Uh, Mike, I have a question here. I know the answer, but I'm going to let you answer it. Is there a a term limit on board members? Um, I'm not aware of any. We have No, there is no term limit on board members. You can run as many times as you want. Uh, We've had situations where... um, Board members have served for, you know, 25, 30, 40, 50 years. So as long as the community reelects you, you can continue to serve. Uh, I'd like to piggyback on what Terry was talking about and just two things. In terms of the relationship between administration and the board, uh, a no surprises rule is, is always a good rule. The board members should not be surprised mm-hmm. by the administration at board meetings, nor should it should uh, it work the other way around. It shouldn't work that board members shouldn't surprise the administration. Administration shouldn't be surprising board members. And I always like to talk about, and a veteran field service rep from years ago taught me this, um, the no mushrooms rule. No one should be a mushroom. You know what a mushroom is? It can fed a lot of well, no. fertilizer. And so <laughs> no board member should be a mushroom and no administrator should be a mushroom. And if you open up that clear communication line, uh, everything works a whole lot better, just like Terry said. Yeah, uh, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna surprise you because I'm gonna go a little bit in a different direction. Uh, Terry, he talked about communication, and um, and that's probably you know we talked about the relationship with the superintendent and with the the your colleagues on the board. Uh, building trust is probably the most important thing, not more than anything else. But that's built on communication, isn't it? You know, it's built on communication, and it's built on everyone acting professionally and staying between those guidelines that we talked about before, whether it's the code of ethics or whether it's the uh, the bylaws of the board. It's knowing what your role is, acting ethically, 
acting professionally, and being able to sit down at a board meeting and communicate. You know, I always say at board meetings because a lot of people say, you know what, we don't have a lot of public that come. The public is allowed to come and watch the board work. But if you're spending a lot of your time, um, you know, talking about the bill list and, and going over things on the agenda that truthfully um, you're going to have to vote for anyway because a lot of it's legal, if you're spending a lot of your time doing that, you're not spending the time that you need to talking about what you think is important. So a lot of times boards need to sit back and reevaluate and say, where are we spending our time? We need to have better discussions on where it is we want to go, where we want to take things versus, you know, why did we spend $5.62 at Ace Hardware last month? Um, a lot easier said than done, but I mean, it, it provides a lot to the administration in terms of the more you can tell them what it is you want, the better job they can do to get you there. And we're not, uh, and you're not saying, and I I know this, that everyone has to be best friends, but they just have to communicate with each other openly and honestly, or else it could be difficult. Absolutely. You don't have to go out with yeah. each other. You don't have to be best buddies. You don't have to be on Facebook together. Uh, but well, you that's do a whole other program, Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was going to get a rise out of you. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm going to switch gears, though, though, because you mentioned Facebook. Um, Mike, I, I think uh, if you're elected to the board, you need to know about an acronym, Oprah. And also your personal uh, about emails and communication in a different venue, communicating uh, through email and that sort. First, what's Oprah? Besides, the, Oprah is the uh, Oprah is the Open Public Records Act. Um, it is the more recent enactment of what some used to call the right to know law. And there's a common law right to know, and there's now a statutory right to know under the Open Public Records Act. Um, kind of with the whole, and I won't leave it to email, but any electronic communication, um, I'm not up enough on all the different venues, but if you're, you know, whether it's Twitter or whether it's Tumblr or any of these devices where you communicate through electronic means, know that those communications are government records if you're talking about board business. So you need to be aware that anything you put in writing along those lines could be, depending on the nature of what the writing is, could be available to the public, and the public could access that even though it may be on your home computer or your home telephone, So your own telephone. So it's, it's important to understand that when you put something out there in writing, there are ability, there's the, the ability to access a number of those documents uh, through the Open Public Records Act. Now, there are a lot of exceptions. For instance, for deliberations or advisory consultative deliberate exceptions, if you're in the process of deliberating over something and it's not a final document, that may be able to be redacted. But I think it's important to understand that when you put something out there in writing and it's dealing with board business, know that members, other members of the public might be able to get access to that. The other piece, and the Open Public Meetings Act, sometimes OPMA or the Sunshine Law, if you have a majority of board members who are communicating electronically and you get past the magic quorum number, five on a nine-member board, four on a seven-member board, three on a five-member board, etc., you may have created a meeting under the Sunshine Law. Even though you might not all be doing it at the same time, if it's sequential, Board member one says something to board member two, to three, to four, to five, and bingo. You're now actually, if you think about it, you're now actually deliberating over a board topic that's outside the public eye. So the best advice I can give folks when they're talking about electronic communication goes back to an old TV show, Hill Street Blues. At the Shape Up meetings, those of you who remember that show, uh, Mike Conrad played Sergeant Phil Oosterhouse, and at the end of the shape-up meetings in the morning, he would say to the assembled police officers, now let's be careful out there. And that would be my advice to 
anything electronic in terms of communication, let's be careful out about let's be careful out there because it may be publicly accessible. And uh I'm just going to reiterate that in that uh, most people communicate via email, but once you become an elected official, a public official, um uh, and you're dealing with board business, many of those and I'm going to clarify for our board candidates out there, we have special meetings just on this issue in and of itself. But um these can be, you know, you may have to be wary that things that you did as a private citizen are now uh, you know, open to the public. And, Ray, if I can add to that just a little bit, just to clarify, it's not every email. It's not every Twitter tweet. Right. See, I don't, I don't really know what this stuff is. Um, but it's not everyone. I mean, if you're emailing somebody and you're making a, an agreement to go out to lunch somewhere, or you're going to get tickets for the Giants or the Eagles game, and you're going to, you know, it's conversation that is social, that's not accessible. But if it's dealing with board business about the upcoming meeting, about maybe deliberations over a hearing that's going to occur, or the hiring of a new superintendent, anything like that is likely to be public. So just be real careful. All right, I'm going to switch gears again for Terry. Um, Board members are also often told, and we mentioned this before a little bit, uh, not to micromanage. And just clarify what a micromanagement means, because it is something that's in the Code of Ethics. You know, micromanaging is simply either getting involved in how something is being done in a district, or telling the administration how to do their job. Um, good example is, um, uh, let's, let's say busing. You know, I, I was at a school the other day, and um, there were a lot of buses, and there were a lot of parents, and kids were all over the place, and they're all trying to get home and get in their cars and get in their buses and leave. And, you know, it kind of looks like organized chaos. Uh, but somebody made the statement that, you know, maybe this is not very safe here. So when you go back to your board meeting and somebody says, you know, look, that didn't look really safe. I think we should do this. You've kind of just overstepped your bounds. And you can say, hey, look, it looked kind of chaotic. I'm concerned for the safety of the kids. And let the administration handle it from there. The reason I brought that up is because we were embroiled in that once in, at our board, and we sat there for 45 minutes at a board meeting, trying to decide um, how we were going to handle this situation, to so making it a one-way street, um, posting signs, doing this, doing that. 45 minutes, and we finally said to the superintendent, "What do you think?" And he said, "Well, here's what my plan is." Tomorrow, I'm going to call the insurance company. I think they have a traffic advisor on staff. I'm going to contact our uh, police officer that's uh, assigned to the school, and we're going to get together and sit down the best course of action to make sure that we can keep all these students safe. So for 45 minutes, we were actually telling the administration how to do their job. He already had a handle on it. That's micromanaging. Okay. Um uh, Mike, oftentimes, um, not often, I would say it varies, but there's a board, sometimes there's a board attorney at board meetings. Sometimes uh, districts have varying, various uh, policies on the board attorney. Like, I might get elected to the board, and I don't want to ask the board attorney a question, but the board attorney can only be asked a question by the board president or the superintendent. Why is that? Well, the boards often develop policies in terms of access to the attorney because of the accountability regs from 2008. They require that districts put together a uh, process by which you use your legal services in the most prudent, efficient, and effective manner. So oftentimes that is one vehicle by which boards will do that, uh, and essentially to limit costs. Now, the board attorney represents the board. The board attorney does not represent an individual board member. So I think that's an important consideration. The board attorney's role is to advise the board. It's 
one thing that we cannot do here at school boards. We can't tell you what to do. We can't suggest or provide advice as to a course of conduct because we don't have that attorney-client relationship. But that's the, the role of the board attorney. Um, it's important to realize that the board attorney is advising the full board and will operate at the behest of the board. You know, you may get questions, why doesn't the board attorney do this? Why doesn't the board attorney do that? Well, because perhaps the full board does not want the board attorney to do that. And that really is, goes to the heart of the attorney-client relationship in that the board is the client, and to do something that in, with an individual board member at an individual board member's behest would, would likely violate that attorney-client relationship. I have a question from a caller about school ethics. I'm going to put you on. I don't know your name, um, but do you want to – your last four digits are 0469. Do you want to tell me uh, – you have a question on school ethics about how they're reported? Hello? Oh, I guess it's not working. Uh, Mike, uh, uh, one of the questions that we were given was – how are school ethics uh, violations reported? Um, actually, that's pretty simple. The when they let's let's back up half a step and talk about a complaint because that'll give you a heads up in terms of how they report it. The school ethics commission is in not of the Department of Education, so they are the gatekeepers. They are the custodians of school ethics, the School Ethics Act. So if someone believes that a complaint, that someone has behaved in an ethical manner, they file a complaint with the School Ethics Commission. The School Ethics Commission, which is made up of nine members, two board members, two school administrators, five members of the public, no more than five from the same political party, they're appointed by the governor, they make a decision as to whether that conduct violates the School Ethics Act. When they make that decision, that decision is posted on the Department of Ed website under the School Ethics Commission uh, NJ school law section. So every school ethics determination that has been made since 1997, they, didn't, they only started posting them then, will be found on the Department of Education website. Um, if they were, they would be nicer if they were all searchable, but what you have to do is kind of go through the list. They list them chronologically. You can go through the years and see the names and the boards and and then click on that, and we'll open up, and it'll give you the whole decision. Okay, I have a, a caller. Your last uh, your digits are nine. Hi, my name's Ray, and nine eight three seven. You have a question? Yes, I do. Um, my question is that if I understand the hows and what, what is the board's uh, responsibility? But if they have an idea and they want to share that idea. How do they go about without uh, going into the how portion of the uh, the action? Okay, thanks a lot. I'm gonna put you sure. on uh, hold, and I, Terry, I'm gonna give that over to you. Sure. You know, the first um, your first contact would be to the board president, um, and say, "Hey, look, you know, I have this. I'm not sure when to bring it before the board or how to bring it before the board." And they can help you with that. They can help you get it on the agenda, um, tell you the best time to bring it up. They may also say, you know what, we have something working on this. We'll bring it up at the meeting. Perhaps we'll refer it to committee. So your first call is absolutely to the board president. Um, and that is their job to help, uh, to help you put forth your ideas to get them on the agenda. Now keep in mind, um, they may say, once it gets to the board, they may say, look, this is really good but we've already got X, Y, and Z going on this year. We may save that for goal setting in the summer. Um, but first and foremost, uh, go to your board president. All right, I'm going to have to wrap this. Uh, you know what? We're at the end of, of one hour, and uh, I just want—I need to close this up. But for those callers, if you need more information, feel free to contact any one of us. Uh, go to our website, but my name is Ray Pinney. It's rpinney, P-I-N-N-E-Y at njsba.org. Terry Lewis is T. Lewis at njsba.org. And Mike Calber is M. Calber, and you'll have to go to our website to spell it. 
uh, all these at NJA.org. Uh, please feel free to reach out to us at any time, even if you're not elected, and if you have questions. Um, Terry, I'd like to thank you for joining me. Thank you. Mike, I'd like to thank you for joining me. Thank you, Ray. It's always my pleasure. And to those people who are running for the school board, good luck. Uh, you made a contribution to your community just by deciding to run for the board. Uh, but just please know that New Jersey School Board Association, if you ha- once you get elected, uh, we are there to serve you and to work with you to help you uh, serve the children of your district. And good luck. Thank you. <laughs>